Welcome to Policy Today. Thoughtful discussion of current issues vital to the future prosperity of Washington State. Produced by the Washington Research Council. My name is Lou Moore. I'm the president of the Washington Research Council, and I'm here today with Mary Strau, who's our communications director and a research analyst at the council. Also here with us today is Randy Abrams-Karras, who joined us for an earlier Common Ground edition of Policy Today and graciously accepted our invitation to join us again today as a panelist. Randy has worked with SEIU as a government affairs person with the Jewish Federation of Seattle and with a number of other activist organizations, community-minded efforts. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Our special guest today to joining Randy is Dan Evans, not the Governor Dan Evans, but the Dan Evans who was state director for uh, Patty Murray, Senator Patty Murray. He's also been a congressional chief of staff for Congressman Don Bonker, as well as Congresswoman Jolene Unsell. He's, uh, he's worked in private practice as an attorney. He's done a lot in terms of bringing people together to fix environmental problems. He's been on the board of the Washington Environmental, uh, excuse me, the Washington Conservation Voters, as well as the Washington Environmental Council. Dan, welcome to Policy Today. Thanks, Lou. It's great to be here. Uh, Dan, uh, there are principles that you and I have talked about a lot, and we've tried to deploy them and some things that we've worked on together that can help people clarify what they really want and how to get there and doing it in a fashion where they're working together rather than fighting it out through the courts. So can you talk a little bit about some of these principles? Yes, and just to start off, um, I'd, I'd like to say that really we're at an interesting point in our history. Um, we've, um, in, back in the uh, late 60s and into the mid-70s, most of the big environmental statutes were enacted. And so that was the first generation of environmental legislation. And in many respects, we're still in that first generation. Um, I, I like to call what we're about to talk about now is the next generation of environmental management. Um, uh, although I, I think back now that it was a generation ago uh, when I was in law school at George Washington when... Um, we were, uh, I was having um, coursework with some of the program managers, uh, the first uh, generation of environmental managers who were looking over the horizon at, um, at opportunities to improve the effectiveness of environmental statutes and implementation. And, uh, and so it was at that point that we started talking about some of the new tools. And so, Lou, your question about, you know, what, what are some of those principles uh, has come up. Um, and I guess the, the good news and the bad news is that uh, we're, we're still stuck in this first generation of environmental management. Our performance is, um, is not great in many areas, and so there's a real opportunity for us to improve performance. And some of the principles that we'll talk about uh, this afternoon will help us to, to get there. Sure. And I would say that it is not just in the environmental arena that we're in the first generation. I mean, I, I uh, have come to the conclusion that one of the problems we have is that our, our government is designed to deliver services the same way they were done uh, from Franklin Roosevelt on, once the government became more involved in human services and things like this, and times have changed. I'm not getting into the philosophic bases of what we should do, but how we do it, I think, could be improved upon in a lot of areas. Good, good. Well, and first, um, going back to some of the problems that we've we've got and opportunities. <coughs> pardon me with the with this generation. 
of environmental management. And it's, it, it certainly has to be said that we've made tremendous gains in cleaning up the environment. Nobody wants to go back to the you know, late 60s, early 70s in Los Angeles and breathe the kind of uh, air oh. that was, uh, we had then. So there have been tremendous gains. But we're at a point right now where the costs are escalating, and we're at a point of diminishing returns with the, with the current tools and strategies. And the question is, uh, how do we get to more efficient, more effective environmental management, uh, something that works both for the economy and for the environment? And so that's, that's the, the, the challenge for us right now. And a couple of the principles um, that, that we're going to look to address some of the underlying issues here. So one is that we're Right now, we can be high cost and low benefit in some aspects of environmental management. Um, the statutes were not all designed to work together seamlessly, and we've got a fragmented system of environmental management with, with many stovepipes and, and small uh, windows on different pieces in the environment, not an integrated holistic approach in, in many cases. Um, and there's, there's been, in some cases, um, rigid and prescriptive approaches to regulation that doesn't allow for efficiency and effectiveness and some of the uh, new opportunities to improve outcomes. And finally, um, it's often contentious. We, we see um, an adversarial approach, um, not a lot of collaboration sometimes, and a fair amount of pro process friction and even gridlock that causes all kinds of uncertainty and other high costs. So those are the problems that we've got. You know, again, the opportunity is before us to, to do better. And some of the different elements of this next generation of environmental management, slow moving as it, as it might be, um, are one, um, we can take advantage of new information and be better informed. Uh, so smarter approaches to uh, management and using new tools like an integrated information system, GIS, uh, geographic information systems that, that help um, users, even those of us around the table that are policy types, uh, access uh, technical information and understand the different data layers and be able to drill down into issues. Um, second is the notion of net gain or multiple benefit uh, above the, the existing regulatory standard today, which is no net loss. No net loss is something of a fiction. It, we, we rarely achieve no net loss in this area. It's usually a loss uh, that we're talking about, and it can be costly too. And so what we're talking about here is net gain for both economic and environmental interests. And that's a deal uh, that when we, when, we, when we look to that as opposed to a no net loss um, uh, decision, uh, it's, it's easier to get to um, innovative outcomes and, and better performance. It's kind of scarcity versus abundance, maybe. Yes, yes. It's, a, it's an it. entirely different psychology, and it's a very contentious discussion to argue about where that line is on no net loss and whether you're above if you're in, in net benefit, um, there's a sense of abundance, and we're, we're into the frosting here, and, and that's a better place to be and an easier place to make decisions and get agreement. Um, also, um, providing flexibility, accountable flexibility for better performance. And so being performance-based as opposed to narrow, rigid prescription is, is uh, key. Um, and... Um, uh, getting beyond those narrow stovepiped um, uh, outcomes. Um, fourth, um, being able to take these different stovepipe regulatory 
perspectives on the environment and and bring them together in an integrated way. Um, there's a group that's been working in the transportation area for a while. Lou, you and I have worked on this in other contexts in, in Snohomish County, um, and it's uh, the multi-agency permitting team. So a one-stop shop approach to permitting rather than taking them one at a time and, and often not having harmony between the different permitting interests um, that can, can cause a regulated party to zig and zag in different directions at high cost. Um, Fifth, uh, bringing some collaboration to it. Now, in being able to work in a geographic area like a river reach scale um, or at a larger ecosystem scale, watershed scale, can often be very efficient uh, in terms of accommodating multiple interests. Uh, I think the day is gone where we're looking to get just one single outcome. We need to look at multiple outcomes that benefit the environment, the community, and the economy all at the same time. And figuring out how we do that requires collaboration. You don't get there through litigation or, or a contentious approach to these things. We're much better off if we can work together in the same space, uh, whether it's geographic space or, or a, uh, a topical area. And um, sixth, and this is the last principle, um, is that we need to do a better job of measurement. If we're going to have a performance-based system that's accountable and verifiable, you need to measure. And so having measurement systems, monitoring and evaluation in place uh, to do that, those are, those are key pieces of this new framework uh, for environmental management. Sure. Well, um, I think most of what you're saying is commonsensical, but maybe putting it together this way is going to be helpful to some folks because there is a real methodology to this. So where where have any of these things been tried and accomplished successfully, any of these elements? So most of these are works in progress, but we've, we've made some real strides. And um, Lou, I hope you don't mind if I talk about one of our joint efforts. By the way, Lou and I, although we come from uh, different sides of the aisle, uh, we've been able to work together, <clears throat> and it's a great benefit to have uh, both R&D uh, perspectives and, and, and some of that political bandwidth. Uh, but when we've got both benefit for the environment and for the economy and the community all at the same time, that's not a hard thing to, to have uh, go beyond a partisan issue. So um, I'd, I'd go to uh, Snohomish County and the sustainable lands strategy there. That, that's an initiative uh, that Lou and I um, have been working on for the last five or six years um, where the agricultural community, has, um, uh, which is farming the floodways and estuaries uh, within the area, 85% of the agricultural land is in, in those uh, riverine or estuary areas, and often behind dikes, uh, was coming into conflict with the environmental community and tribes over habitat that needed to be secured for salmon recovery in those areas. So fighting for the same, some of the same land and water, uh, and not getting very far with either objective, farmland preservation and agricultural productivity on the one hand, or on environmental habitat and salmon gains on and water quality on the other. Um, putting together these groups in a collaborative effort with good information, in fact, uh, bringing in some very important information about how the river systems work and, and um, where, where things are eroding or uh, loading up with sediment uh, was important information for all parties. Uh, connecting those groups in a collaborative way and then building 
net gain packages, the wonky terminology, but but meaning that that the uh, that the salmon interests and the fish interests and the agricultural interests all came together um, for benefit for both of those those sides uh, through a system or a set of projects and actions that that got them both to net gain above no net loss into net gain. That's a deal that we could work together on. A lot of mistrust and and conflict over the years, and it takes a while to overcome that and to create some of the trusting collaboration. But in a number of areas, we've been able to get tribes and farmers and resource managers all working together for common benefit. I have a, I have a question where the answer may be so obvious, I, I'm missing it. But how... I mean, this all makes a lot of sense. Um, I have a background where I'm supposed to be skeptical and try to find the downside to things. And but who doesn't? Who wouldn't adopt this? And why isn't it being applied to things like climate change and getting? You know, so different industries and different businesses have signed on to say we want to stop climate change, but no one has actually bought or not many, have bought into specifics on how to address it. Um, so it sounds like something like this work, works after you get over the initial miss and distrust on a local, regional level. How do we, how do we apply this? So um, good, good questions, Randy. And you've got a couple of questions embedded in there. And I'd like to take the first one. Um, how, you know, why, why aren't we moving forward with these kinds of um, initiatives that seem to be pretty practical and commonsensical. Um, one of them is um, that we're not used to dealing that way, and there's parts of the regulatory community that are not used to dealing this way. It requires flexibility, as we've talked about here, and and operating out of the normal box. Um, and we've, um, in in many cases, uh, I, in fact, I can't think of very many legislators. Uh, members of Congress or members of the state legislature that we've worked with or people at the high program level that don't think that this is the way to go, that these are some of the reforms that we need to take. And, and one, of our, one of our notions here is that we don't have to go back and change the major statutes, the Clean Water Act, the Federal or State Clean Air Act. You know, those are things that, that have inherent in them sufficient flexibility to be able to, to create some of this, this new dynamic. Um, and that's uh, so that's not the statutes that are the constraint it's it's more often people and and there are there are folks um, in within the political community that basically say this is my sandbox you know I get to call the shots I don't need to collaborate with anybody and uh, we see this very much in in Snohomish County where you've got some folks on the fish side that say Listen, we're we're coming to get this farmland and uh, get out of the way. We're gonna we're gonna take it. Um, and there are folks on the farm side that said, you know, we don't have to do any of this water quality stuff or save fish. You know, we can we can we've always farmed this. This is this is my grandfather's land, and I'm gonna farm it. You know, the way I've, I've always wanted to. And uh, and so those are those are two hardline positions. You know, we've been working to get. A, a critical mass of support, and that's what you have to develop. It's not everybody, but it has to be a critical mass of support that say, you know, we're in for working together. We're going to have to share the sandbox, and we're going to do better if we work together than if we duke it out. 
And it's easy in our political system to fight to a draw on these things. And we've often been, uh, these issues have been defined by, by the polls, by the extremes, not by that critical mass of support that could be built in the middle, where if we work together, we get better results. So that's, that's sort of the underlying reason, Randy, but there are, there are individuals in, in power, uh, in positions within the agencies who are used to doing things the old way. If they step out of the box, there is some risk. And it's just always easier with a big workload to stay in that comfortable groove and do things the way you've always wanted to do it. I think that's I think that's true, Dan. And uh, you know, w- one thing that I'm thinking about right now is the fact that when people form opinions of the people on the other side, and when they do not understand why they have the priorities they have, it. it people of goodwill end up expending a lot of energy in combat. I mean, there's always going to be people where conflict is their business model. But there are people that are not like that. I'm thinking of the tribal dinner that uh, was put on uh, by the uh, Stiligwamish tribe as part of this process you're referring to in Sohomish County where the farmers were learning. I felt that they were really uh, internalizing some of the values of the native folk there, and they just had not even thought about some of the things that were shared with them. And they didn't leave with, uh, oh, well, whatever the tribes want is great. I mean, not hardly. I mean, they have some real economic interest, but the dynamic changed. Yes. And, uh, do you want to talk about that a little yeah, bit? Yeah, Building and trust. Because that's, that's, I mean, this is soft science that we're talking about. It's not a, not a clear, bright line, you know, check it off the list kind of thing. But it's it's a cultural change, and and it's it's about cultivating that that trust and and the the respect but between between those folks. But we've moved from a position of hostility and animosity, and lack of understanding between these these communities living in the same space and usually not talking to each other, to one of maybe grudging uh, accommodation, to mutual respect, to actually now carrying each other's burdens. And uh, we've got over the years, and it's taken four or five years to, to develop that within this area. So this isn't cheap, it quick, and easy, um, but it's, it's some of the, the real work that has to take place uh, for people to, you know, collaboration is, is, a, is an interesting word, but to be able to work together in, in a way to get to mutual benefit. Dan, I'm wondering, um, you mentioned about... Um statute not necessarily needing to be changed because you can work within that. But what about, um, say, if we're talking about writing new laws, could it incor- could the language of the law itself incorporate um, this type of approach? Could, could that be done? Has it already been done? Or is it something that maybe yes. so as to avoid future... I mean, as long as people right. were on board to avoid future conflict, not conflicts among people, but just conflict among the language and maybe to facilitate this process. Is that something you could see, you could see happening in the future? Yeah. So Mary, um, I'd like the word that you used facilitate because we, you know, we can, we can legislate things, but you can't legislate morality. You can't legislate good behavior. You can't legislate outcomes always. You can hope that it will facilitate those good things. Um, I'd use, uh, two examples. So, on, on one side, we've got the Clean Water Act and the Clean Air Act. 
Interestingly, the Clean Air Act, which was very hot back in the 70s and 80s, and it obviously still is with presidential declarations and things like that, uh, but, but um, interestingly, within the Clean Air Act, uh, there was the flexibility was sought. It was actually President Nixon who got into a cap-and-trade program uh, there to allow for um, uh, some more efficient ways of regulating air emissions. Um, you know, one way is prescriptive and says you're going to use this type of technology and uh, it's very specific and not very flexible. Um, this cap-and-trade system that came in, uh, emissions trading it's called, um, uh, folks who had, say, power plants could go out and seek reductions in sulfur emissions or other kinds of pollutants um, at the lowest price. And they may have a high-cost, low-benefit opportunity. Someone else might have a low-cost, high-benefit opportunity, and you allow the market to go find those most efficient um, um, uh, reductions in emissions. And, and that then um, allows uh, for, obviously, less cost and, and greater efficiency. It also allows, though, for that principle of net gain. So with, a, with emissions trading, you don't get a one-for-one -one trade. You have to do a little bit better than that. You have to get cleaner. And so the environment gets cleaner if it's done right, and there's the proper accounting and verification systems on that. Now, what's interesting is Clean Water Act was set up in much the same way. There's that statutory latitude to allow for effluent trading, not emissions trading, but effluent trading in the water arena, but it really hasn't happened. And there are huge opportunities, especially... I mean, we've, we've, we see them here in Washington State and parts of the Pacific Northwest where we have a lot of wet stuff uh, on <laughs> when we're not in drought. Anyway, and uh, there, are, there are great opportunities to take very high-cost requirements. And I'm thinking of um, wastewater treatment plants that have to spend millions of dollars to reduce very small amounts of a, of a, a pollutant when instead, if they took that money and went to the agricultural arena to buy those same reductions in, in temperature, sediment, nutrients, they could achieve 100 times the reduction in those things at a lower cost, and everybody wins. But it's interesting that we, we haven't set up the systems yet to be able to take advantage of those market-based uh, principles that give us a better outcome, you know, net gain, and also greater efficiency. Now, so that's, that's you ask about legislation. Can we legislate some of these things? Um, another uh, example of what we're talking about here is in the water law arena. Western water law is, is remarkably dysfunctional. There are disincentives to conserve water, even in places like California. It's a commons situation where you can go in and basically, it's just how deep you can drill your well in the San Joaquin Valley, and people are pulling out huge amounts of water to grow almonds that require a couple of gallons of water an almond. So, you know, it's, it's, it, there's a lot of, um, of, of dysfunction in, in Western water law. Walla Walla is a place in our state where it's, they've had a tradition of growing some of the best products, onions and, and wine grapes and things like that. But water's frozen there as it is in many places. And so we went in. We had um, the governor's ecology director work with us. We had state legislators on, on the Democratic and the Republican side working with us. We had tribes and farmers working together. And basically, we rewrote <laughs> in a limited area 
um, the, the water law, and it took a state statute to give us the flexibility to do that and get those better outcomes, but basically allowed us to bubble an area and take away some of those dysfunctional characteristics of Western water law that allowed us to move water to high-value purposes and use it much more efficiently so it's not being wasted. Sure. So, so uh, one thing you mentioned, Dan, uh, going back to Snohomish County, which left a real impression on me was uh, the fact that uh, you have to be able to n not just agree on what has happened around the table, get a common basis of information, but as you look out into the future and potential consequences of, the, of things that are going wrong or that, that we think are, are not as good a policy as we could have, that, that, that there's agreement on what the future might hold. Uh, this is a, certainly an issue with climate change. In the case of Snohomish County, uh, there were the uh, the, the modeling that that, uh, that uh, was done on the river systems there, where folks could see, well, this is a better place to put a dike than this place. This would be a good place to take out a dike or set back a dike and create habitat. And so that was from open source modeling. And this is something that the research council were very interested in. We brought in a fellow who is working on an o a massive open source model for tax policy. But uh, do you want to talk about that a little bit? About the access that kind of access and trust built through those kind of systems. Yeah, so I'd, I'd, I'd like to go back first, though, and, and just mention that in, the, in Snohomish County, um, some of the work that we've done with the Sustainable Land Strategy and a group called Floodplains by Design and Coordinated Investment uh, for Floodplains, you know, all sort of working in the same space at local, regional, and, and statewide levels to uh, try to get multiple benefit, our net gain principle, here. Um, and because of that work and some of the progress we're making and, it, and the ability to, um, to move much more quickly and to build resilience uh, in the ecosystem as changes take place. And climate is, I mean, whether you believe it's man-made or not, um, it, clearly we've got some climate changes that are impacting farmers and fish and all kinds of things. Um, so being able to, uh, to, to model that, the information system is very important. Uh, but I was uh, on my way to saying that the administration has selected Snohomish County and the Snohomish Basin as one of four places in the country that's demonstrating some of these new tools and approaches for resilience. Um, and uh, so we were, we were delighted to get that, that designation. What it means, uh, we're, we're still sort of figuring out, and we want to help the federal government and the state and, and others figure that out, uh, but it's at least a mandate for coordination across the federal family of agencies and with the state and tribes and local governments as well. So we're, 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 we're happy to have that, and it's all focused, that designation is focused on climate resilience. So how do we adapt to some of the changes that are taking place uh, in the nearshore area and the estuaries where we're seeing uh, rising tides and subsidence going on at the same time? Um, Lou, you referenced some of the modeling that was done for the Snohomish Basin, and we're looking at a three-month shift in the hydrograph. So we're basically, we're out of snow, we're out of rainwater by the middle of the summer under these new regimes with a couple of degrees change in, in temperature. So that's, those, are, those are big consequences <laughs> for fish, for farmers, for all of us that rely on water, and, and who doesn't? So... So those are some, some big things, and having, having access, that's part of that information system, that integrated information system. And that's one of the most powerful things 
uh, that, that we need to build around is having that information accessible to decision makers, the same kind and quality, and to policymakers and to participants in these areas as we try to work together um, for, for better outcomes. Sure. And, uh, uh, and what I've liked, what I liked about the work that was done by the county in Sohomish and the work that American Enterprise Institute is doing now and others is that this open source modeling, anybody can scrutinize what goes in the model. So the allegations that you hear constantly that all those environmentalists, they just put in certain data so we could get out this model that shows there's uh, climatic uh, problems, that 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 is not you know, that can be refuted, and, and, and people of, of goodwill can see, that have an expertise, can see how these models are created, and it also improves the models because people can input new data um, who have expertise that hasn't been tapped uh, up until now. Randy, do you have uh, any other questions? Well, I was going to say, wow, <laughs> that's really impressive. Um, and then as we've been having this discussion, I've been thinking that when we do our planning, um, we think about our goals and then we think of criteria that they need to meet. Are these the right goals and are these the, do we have the right criteria um, for why, what's our intention and what is our motivation? And I'm thinking that this is actually a good model that doesn't have to be put in statute but can be practice, just best practices used by state agencies. Um, and I think that I'm going to steal it for my own workplace. Um, but a good best practices that can be applied throughout state agencies so that they know that they're using the best information possible, that they're meeting all of these, these criteria, and that way you're taking out the stumbling blocks and the, the silos that people are working in and knowing that this will facilitate some, some intersectionality and interconnectedness because we are all interconnected and you know whether it's labor or healthcare or education we all suffer the same or not we don't suffer the same um, but we all suffer from bad decisions um, or decisions made in a vacuum um, and all all benefit when the best information is available and when everybody's working off the same the same song sheet, singing off the same song sheet or working with the best information possible and with a set of common goals mm -hmm. to reach. Well and Randy, you're 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 going to the question of, you know, how do we affect change and, and what drives change and how do we get people to to step up and and you know, do some of these things that are out of the box. Um, and, you know, one of our theories with the sustainable land strategy was, you know, we don't, we don't have any authority. I mean, the sustainable land strategy, is, it's a round table. It's a, it's, a, it's a neutral place where people with really different positions can come in and work together. And we facilitate that. We provide good information. And we provide our hypothesis is that if we can get together tribes and farmers and, and different divergent interests like that. If you can come together with good information, so it's, you've got a technically sound game plan, you work together for mutual benefit, net gain even, above standard, and, uh, and you can put that together in a package that's broadly supported that will have priority access to permit approvals and also to funding. And that has turned out, that hypothesis has largely, I will not say universally, but has largely uh, been confirmed uh, by by our experience. Yeah, absolutely. 
Dan, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank uh, you. This is Lou Moore. I'm here with Mary Strau. We're with the Washington Research Council, and Randy abrams Karras has been our guest along with Dan Evans. Thank you so much for joining us as well. Policy Today is a production of the Washington Research Council, dedicated to providing timely, credible research and policy analysis supporting economic vitality and private sector job creation. For more information, go to researchcouncil.org.